Welcome to the Special Ed Files. I'm Jennifer Laviano, a special education attorney. And I'm Julie Swanson, a special education advocate. Case by case, we expose what really goes on in special education. Each episode, we open up a case based on real life experiences. We reveal where things went wrong and explain the legal implication. Finally, we solve the problem so you don't have to. Let's open up a file. All names in this podcast have been changed to protect the individual's identities. Let's open up the file on Mary and the Needle. Julie, let's start with the facts. And on this one, I will never forget the day you called me to tell me what had happened to your client. Oh, I know, Jen. So, well, this is a tough one. Uh, yes. Because in all of the years that I have advocated, never have I come across a situation like this. And it could have been a very, very, very serious situation, which luckily was avoided. And let me start with some of the facts. So I was called by a parent who was very, very upset that her daughter, Mary, a middle middle school student, had a history of wandering off from the classroom at school. And in many cases, she had avoided some serious situations from happening. And the parents were very worried. So they gave me a call and said, look, we really want to, we believe that our daughter needs a one-to-one paraprofessional. A para- and Julie, if I recall, this is a, a student who had autism, correct? Yes. Oh, so sorry. I forgot That's to mention okay. that. Yes. No? And so Jen, you know, for the purposes of, of people listening, what is a paraprofessional? A paraprofessional is an adult who is assigned to a student who has a disability to for a variety of reasons. In in Mary's case, the parents were asking for a paraprofessional so she could be kept safe. Sometimes in schools, paraprofessionals are dedicated to one person, uh, one student, or there could be a paraprofessional assigned to perhaps two, three students. So and Julie, if- I just want to say, you know, depending on where you are, what state you're in, uh, what district you're in, right. uh, that person could be referred to as a paraprofessional. They could be referred to as an aide, a one-to-one, a classroom assistant, a teaching assistant. There's lots of terminology, but right. essentially we're talking about an adult who in this particular case, you were requesting be assigned to one student uh, in order to support her throughout her school day. Exactly. So the parents got me involved and they said, look, we don't want our daughter outplaced to a private special education school. We feel very strongly that she needs to stay at her home school with her friends and her community. We just believe that this is vital to her safety at the school. Okay. So we, I get started. We have an IEP team meeting. An IEP team meeting is an individualized education program meeting. These are the meetings that are held between parents and a school district at which decisions are made about your child's special education program. Mm -hmm. And I was successful in getting Mary a paraprofessional. And all was well with the world, okay? Or so you thought, right? So I thought until... (laughs) I got a call from this parent, the the mother, who was hysterical on the phone, had been, sounded like she was 
completely traumatized, and explained the following story to me. Okay, so it goes. This is in the nature of you can't make this stuff up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Mary was walking down the hallway with a couple of other students who obviously were in special education, who they were all with an adult. Okay, now let's remember Mary's supposed to have a one-to-one dedicated. Right, and, and dedicated, we mean not emotionally dedicated, but that that, that is her assignment. That or is his her assignment, yes. Dedicated just to Mary, not the other students who were walking down the hallway with Mary. Right. Well, nobody really knows how this happened, but Mary decides she's going to veer and take a right. Now, nobody notices this. Mary walks into the nurse's office. Mm-hmm. Now, on any other day, the nurse may have said, oh, Mary, you really need to be with Mrs. or Mr. So-and-so, whoever the paraprofessional was. And perhaps the nurse would have made sure that Mary got to where she was supposed to be safely. But on this day, Jen, there was a substitute nurse. Mm-hmm. And this is where there was a perfect storm yep. of every possible thing that could have gone wrong. So, yeah. So this substitute nurse says, are you Amanda and are you here for your shot? To which Mary said, yes. Okay. She was not, however, obviously Amanda. She was not Amanda, nor did she have diabetes, nor did she require the insulin shot that the substitute nurse thought she needed to give this student who she thought was Amanda and who Mary had just confirmed, yes, I'm Amanda. Yeah. So the substitute nurse, now this is like, I, 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 uh, I know. this is, the, yeah, okay. So the first thing that goes wrong is that, well, no, the first thing that goes wrong is that her Mary, one-to-one para was, was not yeah. with her. Yes. Exactly. And then the, the mistaken identity yes. of Amanda as Mary. Yes or Mary as Amanda. Now the substitute nurse goes into Amanda's little nurse kit. And step one was, well, let's take a blood prick with a lancet to get her blood sugar. Right. Well, there were no extra lancets. So the substitute nurse used a used lancet Mm. and pricked Mary. With with Amanda's lancet. With Amanda's lancet. Okay. Now the substitute nurse gets the insulin shot ready and she's just about to give her the shot when another adult walks into the nurse's office alarmed because no, this adult obviously knew this was not Amanda and Mary is not a diabetic and doesn't need an insulin insulin shot shot. and, and, and says, what are you doing? Stop. Okay. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Because and, and for all we know what happened, somebody realized that the pair, the pair realized that Mary was not with them. Who knows? We don't know exactly what happened. Right. But can you imagine no. what would have happened if this young girl had been given an insulin shot? Okay. Yeah. Yep. So now the, the, the parent, the mother did not find this out until the end of the day, which that's another right. thing. She should have been yep. alerted immediately. Right. And so when she's finally alerted of it, they have to take her to the emergency room because 
you know, let's remember that the sharing of blood oh, sure. products is very dangerous, considering um, AIDS and other blood-borne diseases. So right. apparently what happened at the hospital and what ensued there traumatized Mary, traumatized the mother. Um, I don't believe the father was uh, at the hospital. And then the hospital then said, you now for the next year have to, on a regularly scheduled basis, I don't know what it was, must come back and get your blood, the, Mary's blood drawn, which the blood drawing experience was just uh, apparently you know, traumatizing. For As her. it is for many students who have significant sensory concerns, et cetera. Sure. And, uh, right. Just, yeah. right. I don't even like to have my blood drawn. But no, I don't okay. either. So this is where the mother picks up the phone to me and said, uh, hysterically crying, Jen. Of course, of course. And I, I really had a hard time understanding her, but she explained what happened. And I, I just couldn't believe it. Now, yeah. at this point, her parents, as I said, really never, ever wanted Mary outplaced. Mm-hmm. And But at this point, as you can imagine, their trust in the school district was below zero. Yeah, sure. Um, because the, the, the circumstances or the, the, the fallout of what could have happened as a result of Mary having an insulin shot was just too much for them to, to fathom. Absolutely. And just so that our listeners are aware, an outplacement, what we mean by that is where the school district determines that the child's needs can't be met in the public school and they um, change the child's IEP to reflect a placement in a a school that is substantially separate and typically is a school that um, only has children with disabilities in it. Um, And so that's what you're you're referring to as as an out-of-district placement. Right. And you know, the, we'll, we'll get to the law, but there are very specific aspects of the law that encourage students to stay in their homeschool. Absolutely. So at this juncture, I put in a call and, of course, an email to the school district requesting an IEP team meeting because obviously this triggered the need to get together as a team and discuss this very important matter. So there we are. That's that's the gist of that. That's the gist of it. And, and uh, ultimately, the district did outplace her, if I if I recall correctly. Well, well yes. The, so, and, and as I was saying, the parents didn't want that, right? But because they had lost all their trust and they were they feared for their daughter's life at this point, they reluctantly asked for an out of district placement. At this juncture. I believe that the school district was feeling a tad vulnerable. Yeah, I would imagine. But it happened and basically said to me, Julie, what do the parents want? Yeah. Yep. There are a few things more terrifying than sending your child to school and being afraid for their physical safety. And that is the place that unfortunately many parents of children with disabilities find themselves. It's it's scary. Right. So, you know, and Jen, I had taken great precautions at the IEPT meeting and to get the record to be very precise with protocols in place because I tried to envision every possible angle that could go wrong. Unfortunately, in, in, in spite of all of that, what happened still happened. So I did say to the district, listen, the last thing that these parents wanted 
was for Mary to be outplaced. But at this juncture, they just, they cannot recoup their trust. And we are asking for an out-of-district placement. And, you know, Jen, out-of-district placements can be very difficult to attain. And, and we'll go into that because of the cost. They're expensive. Of that. Yeah. They're expensive. You have to now transport the student in a, in mm-hmm. a separate vehicle or perhaps a van that's going in the same direction. And you're talking about a tuition of a private school versus what could have been a tremendous savings by sit, by having Mary stay at the public school. And I said, you know, it's, it's most unfortunate because they really wanted her to stay, but they understood. They're like, no, we just, we need to make this parent happy because they, you know, obviously under those circumstances, um, they were, Julie, they were not it's happy. It's time to cover the law. Okay. So now we have the facts of what happened with Mary and the Needle. And now I'm going to give a bit of a summary. And Julie, you jump in here um, as to where the law was violated here in this fact pattern. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we're going to talk about what could have been done differently, right? Absolutely. Um, Here's the law and where there were some significant violations. So as you noted, the parents originally brought you in for the purpose of getting uh, an adult support for Mary. And you did that. You went to an IEP meeting and you secured the the one-to-one support for her. And I know you, and I know we talked about it when you called me and told me the story. And I asked you, does it say in the IEP one-to-one? And you said, yes, because that's of course what we do. Dedicated dedicated one-to-one. Because we are all about the Right. In case yes. that was going to be misinterpreted. Exactly. Because that's part of what Julie and I do. Julie is an advocate and I as an attorney is when we go to these meetings, one of the things that's essential is making sure the paperwork accurately reflects what the child's going to get. Can't tell you how many times, especially with one-to-one and paraprofessional support, parents go an entire school year thinking their child has somebody who's dedicated to them. And in fact, they find out they're either a classroom Uh, aid or they serve three, four kids. And so I know, and you clarified when you called to tell me this, as we often do when we call each other to say, you're not going to believe the phone call I just got, um, that you had in fact put it into the IEP. So this person was supposed to be assigned exclusively to Mary. Again, we're not entirely sure what went wrong when Mary veered off to go to the nurse's office, but the very point, and everyone's human, we're very understanding of that. People make mistakes, but Mm -hmm. the whole point of having this person dedicated to her and her IEP, which has to be complied with, it is like a contract between a parent and a school district, is to make sure this kind of thing wouldn't happen, uh, wouldn't happen because she had put herself, Mary, in some some, um, situations prior to you obtaining this support which were worrisome and the parents knew and the district knew she was at risk for that. So that's the very purpose of having that person in her IEP. So the first thing was the IEP was not followed, at least on that one occasion that we know about. And unfortunately, I will say this, Julie, as sympathetic as I am to the fact that there was a perfect storm, the substitute nurse, the fact that you had um, a, a paraprofessional who, for whatever reason, was not where they were supposed to be in the moment. And we don't know the whole story the chances are pretty good that this was not the first time that Mary was left without the support of her one-to-one because it's pretty rare in my experience that the one time something didn't happen is going to be the most egregious example. It's usually, unfortunately, that there have been several times where that has lapsed. So that's the first thing. The IEP was not followed and it is required to be followed by law. Okay. So that's the first thing. All right. The second thing is that the, um, the nurse who was a substitute, had either not been given the IEP 
um, so that she understood that um, this was a student who did or did not require nurse services or had not been in any way trained or given instructions as to how to handle students with disabilities. Um, because, you know, one of the things that Julie and I find a lot is that um, the nurse is such an important and often overlooked adult in the building who really does need to have significant training about children with disabilities. Now, for some students, because they also have medical needs, and um, in this case, we know Amanda had medical needs. We have absolutely no idea whether Amanda um, is also a student who required special education services. But some students who have disabilities also have medical needs or are on medications, and therefore the nurse is regularly part of the team. But there are many, many, many students who have disabilities who don't regularly interface with the nurse. And so it's important that that person be trained about disability in general and understand that just asking a student, are you here for your shot, maybe is not the best approach, considering that there may be students in the building who would answer that question erroneously that they were in fact the student. Right. And uh, Jen, could yeah, I just ahead, interject yeah. here? Because I, I, I realized that I forgot something in the, the fact pattern. Oh, here, tell right? us. And that is that not only did Mary have autism, but Mary also had an has an intellectual disability. And this is an important factor that I should have mentioned, because yes. many students who have autism do not have intellectual disabilities. That's right. And so Mary's judgment or understanding of language were obviously impaired. Mm -hmm. I can just share very, you know, quickly here. Um, I also have a son who has an autism spectrum disorder, who also has an intellectual disability. Mm -hmm. And God love him. There are times where I could say, and I'm, I'm and being facetious, but I'm, I'm very serious. I might say, you know, would you like to go to the moon? And he might say, yes. Right. Right. Exactly. Because he knows I've asked him something. Right. But he can't really understand what I've asked him. And he and right. he's a pleaser and he's learned to say yes. Yes. So, right. you know, this is not uncommon uh, for some students who have autism spectrum disorders and an intellectual disability. So I, I thought that was just really important for me to mention because not all students who have autism may not have the level of impairment that Mary had. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And Sorry so this training is always something that we are focused on for, for not just the special educators, but for as many individuals in the building and adults in the building as possible about disability. Because, you know, the nurse's office, and this is a, a little bit of a tangent, but not quite. And this is part of the, the purpose of our podcast is to give practical tips and information to our, our listeners. The nurse's office is actually a, a great place for families to um, connect because many, many students with disabilities or students who are suspected of having disabilities but haven't yet been identified as being a student with a disability end up spending a lot of time in the nurse's office. So kids who become avoidant of the classroom, perhaps because it's challenging or overwhelming or they are not feeling socially or academically successful there, one of the first things I ask for when I'm hired as a lawyer is all of the educational records for the student, including the nurse's office visits. And I find regularly that students who aren't even yet identified for services are spending extraordinary amounts of time in the nurse's office. I, I remember one kid, I, I got the records and this child was in the nurse's office every day of the school year and sometimes several times a, a day with what we call somatic complaints, meaning 
my head hurts and my tummy hurts. I don't feel well. The child was not actually sick. The child was avoiding school. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's a red flag that this is a student who should be evaluated. So making sure the nurse is part of the community of individuals who are being trained on disability and can recognize uh, disability is uh, another place where we, we would argue that, that the law at least the spirit of it was certainly not being followed in this particular case. Um, and then in, in terms of the implications of something called the least restrictive environment right. provision. Okay. And Julie, you alluded to this when you were going through the facts, these parents did not want to have Mary outplaced. They wanted her to be in her neighborhood school. And that's what the law strongly mandates um, through the provision called the least restrictive environment provision. And that's, provision of the IDEA, which is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act that governs special education, federal law, so it operates in every single state and territory, um, that law says that students with disabilities should be educated in the least restrictive environment to the maximum extent appropriate, okay? Which means for some students, they require a more restrictive program, um, like an outplacement. However, that was not the parents' wish initially, and they only got to that place when they felt that they had no other choice because they didn't think that Mary was safe. So ultimately, the failure to really provide a one-to-one -one who was able to effectively support Mary in the mainstream general education environment meant that Mary was sacrificing her right to the least restrictive environment in exchange for a safe school environment. And that is the decision the team made with the help of you, Julie, and with a, a difficult conversation among the team members, but it wasn't their first choice. And it's a shame that it got to that point, but that was the right. reality after the facts that you outlined. So uh, that's about all I can think of in terms of the legal implications of it, Julie, but let right. me know if I've left anything out. No. And I think, you know, I want to just add that in this case, um, the public school became restrictive for Mary yes. because it jeopardized her safety. So, right. And, yeah. and that I think is just an important f fact to talk about. I know the least restrictive environment can often be misunderstood. Many school districts will say, well, you know, we have to put this student into a more restrictive environment. Therefore, it's not the least restrictive environment, but the least restrictive environment is for the student. So I'll give you an example. My son, he's out of school now, but he has autism, an intellectual disability. By the way, I, he's fantastic as a ton of skills oh. but this is his profile and delightful and it, one of the greatest kids wonderful yeah. he doesn't read he doesn't write he doesn't speak you know he's nonverbal so imagine just under those circumstances a student being in the fifth grade and or sixth or seventh grade and you're in regular ed classes and you're having lectures and unfortunately my son would not benefit from any of that. So therefore that that regular education classroom would not have been his least restrictive environment because he couldn't he, he couldn't even access what's going on in that classroom. Right. Because the program always has to be appropriate, even if it's right. more restrictive, if that's what that child right. or student requires, then that right. is for them the least restrictive environment. Right. It's so always based on the unique unique right. needs of the child. Right. So if, in his case, when he goes into a smaller environment with just students who have disabilities, while somebody might say, well, that's more restrictive to my son, it was his 
least restrictive environment because they taught to his needs. So just wanted to give a little bit more information about the least restrictive environment. Excellent point. Okay, Jen, I think we're ready for the verdict. We're ready for the verdict. Okay, so the verdict on this one is that the parents' trust with their school was completely eroded because of the failure to follow the law and to follow the requirements of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Mm -hmm. Their child was put in a very dangerous situation even after they had gone to the lengths of, of obtaining your services, Julie, as an advocate to get into the child's IEP, the support she needed so that she could be successful in her public school. And um, that trust resulted in a complete breakdown of the parents' ability and the district's understanding of whether or not Mary could be educated in her public school. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, it's so important, Jen, and this is where the the reason that we do this podcast is it truly is our desire not to diminish anyone who works in a public school. We know educators are the hardest working people. We, we, we know their hearts are all in the right places. Sometimes things are beyond their control and things can go wrong. But we really want to talk about what could have been done to avoid this. Okay, so I'm going to start, Jen, with our okay. list. Okay. Well, I'd like to start with the fact that we have to jump over to Amanda, to Amanda for a minute because yeah. Amanda's 504 plan or her um, her um, you know medical plan with the nurse should have had very, very specific instructions and protocols where you are able to assure that the person who's getting this shot is the person who's supposed to receive the shot. And more importantly, there should have been a substitute nurse plan for Amanda. Now that is- So I just want to interrupt you for one second there, Julie. So a 504 plan, I just want to explain what that is, okay? Mm -hmm. So for students who have disabilities who require specialized instruction, special education, um, they receive that IEP that we spent a lot of time talking about. For students who might have a disability that doesn't necessarily require special education or specialized instruction, but requires accommodations, those students receive a 504 plan. Now- That's not always an easy judgment depending on the disability, but if it's truly just a medical disability and doesn't require that the student be taught differently by the teachers, such as diabetes, in the event that that is Amanda's only disability, she's not somebody who's going to likely receive an IEP. She'll receive a 504 plan to have accommodations such as I can leave my gym class to go and get my insulin uh, uh, taken, uh, my shot. insulin shot, or you know, if if um, something occurs where their blood sugar is too high, to make sure that there are the right um, uh, foods available in the cafeteria. Those are accommodations. Those are not specialized instruction. Right, and Section five hundred four of the Rehabilitation Act is a federal anti discrimination law, right, Jen? And so, well, we- and it has the anti discrimination provisions, the provisions that essentially require the reasonable accommodations. Right, um, it's a very broad statute that doesn't just apply to f- schools; it applies to any entity that receives federal funding. Right. So you know, and again, we're we're not to marry yet, but those those precautions should have been in Amanda's plan. Because Great. even if Mary had walked in, the, the substitute nurse would have had a file 
on Amanda with the do's and the don'ts, right? Right. Okay. Yep. And and so let's get to Mary. Okay. Yeah. So with regard to Mary, Mary wandered into the nurse's office. So again, her IEP, which explicitly said she was supposed to have one-to-one adult support throughout her day was not followed. Um, So certainly it should have been followed perhaps as part of the training of the entire school, the Mm -hmm. school, everyone from the people in the front office to the nurse to any adult who's everyone who might interface with with Mary should be aware that Mary is supposed to have a one-to-one para okay Um, that's something so that if an adult sees Mary without her person with her without the adult that's assigned to her they could have a plan in place what's that plan Uh, immediately call the special ed office or the special ed room the resource room whomever it is I I'm not really bogged down nor is Julie as to what that plan would be but there should be a plan and that plan should be discussed at an IEP team with Mm -hmm. all of the people who are involved because the school people are the best situated to know what a good plan would be who's the right person to call who can be available quickly to address the fact that Mary is currently unattended, okay? There should be a plan for when the one-to-one who's assigned to her is out. So the fact that a child's IEP has a one-to-one adult support doesn't always mean that it's the same person all day, every day. Sometimes people switch off or that one person works in the morning and another person works in the afternoon, but people are human. All people are are, are, are capable of getting sick and not being able to go to school uh, or not going to be able to go to their job. And so the reality is you need to have a contingency plan for when the person who is expected to be with the one-to-one um with the, with Mary in this case, um, is not available. And so what's the backup plan? We always have to have backup plans, right? Um, another thing that could happen, I've had many cases where the IEP calls for that one-to-one support, but the parents strongly suspect the child isn't really receiving it. Um, and so you might want to build into um, your child's IEP observations by a consultant on some kind of a regular basis so that you can be sure that the IEP is being followed with fidelity. You could request logs be maintained so that you can see um, that, in fact, your child is getting the support because sometimes um, there's confusion. Uh, as an example, one really good question that was asked um, of a one-to-one, what my client thought was a one-to-one para, but uh, apparently the person who is assigned that role did not realize that they were the one-to-one was um, what were you told was your job responsibilities? Mm-hmm. And that person thought that their job responsibilities were to keep an eye on the one student, um, but also be available in the classroom to assist with all students. Well, that's not really a dedicated one-to-one person. And mm-hmm. so you want to make sure that you're discussing these things as a team Um that you have regular contact with that person, uh, training of the staff to make sure, as we said, that there's a p- backup plan, um, and Julie, a paraprofessional or aid, an absentee plan, right? For some, right. when someone's sick, put it right. right into the IEP. Right. And I, you know, Jen, I thought of something else. What's that? Well, here in Connecticut, where Jen and I live and, and, and work with families, we just had a statewide um, regulation whereby if a parent asks for the paraprofessional to be at the IEP team meeting, they must have that person at the meeting. Now, this has been historically a, a, a difficult thing to pull off because oftentimes yes. you're asking for the person who is responsible for that child to leave that child 
and come to this meeting. Right. Which is, we go back to, well, who's the backup person? Right. But it's so important that that person who spends the largest amount of time with your child is at the meeting at which you're discussing all of these things. That person should be in the loop. And too many times, in, in my opinion, the paraprofessional is out of the loop. Unintentionally, yeah. unwittingly, it doesn't matter. But think about it, Jen. They spend the most of, amount of time with, with oh, the child. Oh, Julie, you know, we have, as you said, we have that legislation in Connecticut that that right. mandated that if a parent requests that their child's paraprofessional be at the IEP meeting, the district must uh, ensure that that happened. And of course, the requirements of giving enough time and notice for these meetings is such that that gives a district time to arrange for coverage for, for during the time that the right. person is at the meeting. However, that is not federally mandated. So what, for those of you who are listening who are struggling, because one of the reasons that we got together as a community in Connecticut to get that legislation passed is many parents were facing having this person working with their child all day, every day, often with some of the more needy of our students, because that's why they require the one-to-one -one support. And many of those students are not able to communicate with their parents about what happens during their school day. And for a while, we had some districts in Connecticut who were explicitly instructing parents that they were not permitted to speak with the one-to-one -one paraprofessional, to email them, to communicate with them. Um, and all communications would go through either the special education teacher, the resource room teacher, or some other designee. And many families rightly felt that that was outrageous. You're telling me I can't talk to the person who spends all day as my child's one-to-one -one support. And um, and so we, we felt it was strong enough of a compelling reason to ask that our state instruct districts through legislation that they were not permitted to exclude these people from IEP meetings. But that is not a guarantee federally. However, parents do have a right under federal law to ask in every state and in every territory to ask to have individuals of their choosing attend the, the IEP meeting. They have a right to invite these people to the meeting. And um, it's not explicit that that includes paraprofessionals, but it's also not, a, it, but there's nothing prohibiting it. So I would certainly suggest that if you feel strongly about having your child's one-to-one -one at your IEP meeting, you give as much advance notice as possible to your administrator, whomever chairs your meeting, that you want that person there and you want to give enough notice that they can arrange for coverage. I've even had parents who've said, if it's very difficult because I have clients, and I'm sure you do, Julie, too, with significant needs whose one-to-one -one requires extensive training, and it took us a long time to find somebody who could do it. And so, you know, we don't have a lot of uh, a deep bench, so to speak, of people who could just fill in. I've had parents say, I'll keep my child home that day, um, you know, from school or for the morning or whatever in order that I can participate in an IEP meeting with um, someone who, who's the one-to-one -one able to communicate with the team about what's been happening in school. Right. And I'll add to that, that, you know, if the, if your district says no and denies you, put a simple email together that says, could you please provide me with the written authority that prohibits the paraprofessional from attending? Great suggestion, Julie. You, you really do you deserve an explanation as to why that person should be excluded. Absolutely. So Jen, that pretty much wraps it up. And I think it, it, this gets to the very reason we're doing this podcast. We want to improve the system. We right. want 
people who work in school districts to be empowered to advocate for what they know their students need. And we really are in our heart of hearts sharing these stories to avoid these type of situations from happening. Yep. And, and it goes at the core of what we always see when, when a par- if a parent gets to a point where they bring Julie or me in, there's been an erosion of trust. And our hope with this podcast is to give everyone, parents and educators, all of whom are interested in improving the lives of people with disabilities, the opportunity to try to avoid the mistakes that we've seen made and repair that trust. So Julie, I think until we reopen our next file, We're closing the file on Mary and the Needle. Take care. Bye-bye. Until we open up our next file, this is Jen Laviano. And Julie Swanson. The Special Ed Files is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. Our executive producer is Dave DeRoche, Quinnipiac Director of Community Programming.